they have something that's unique, this new unique property that allows them to just spread like wildfire because it's something that the market had not been served with before. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Welcome to episode two of the second season. Today we have a great guest and we're going to talk about disruption, disruptive innovation and how it's transforming and disrupting copyright. My name is Dr. Marjorie Hilko. Um, I am both Irish and American by nationality. I am 41 years old and I am a lecturer. So tell us about your career. How did you end up in Ireland? Yeah, so my my trip to Dublin was actually not exactly what I expected it to be, or it certainly it didn't intend to become the home that it is. I came for two weeks on a, a course while I was in college and I loved it here. So I came back for a year abroad and then loved it so much that when I finished college, I came back and stayed as long as I could, basically. And then I did not originally go to college for law. Um, I did history and theater as my majors in the U.S. And then I came over here. And when I was trying to look at options for um, retraining and changing my career and going further with it, I thought I would look into the legal area, which I had always been interested in, but I hadn't chosen as a as a career before then. And then the um, 2008 financial crisis hit. And so I thought, well, okay, I already have this uh, lower diploma in legal studies. Maybe if I get a master's, then someone will take me seriously. And by the time I finished, was finishing that, I was like, actually, I, what I really want to do is teach. So then I went and got my PhD and that led me to where we are now. So it was kind of a, a slow roll, but it, it ended up in, in a career that I'm very much enjoying and, um, or in, in an area of interest that I find fascinating. Your art background talks to your law background then. This is why you're interested in intellectual property? Yes, very much so. I, I think that in, you know, in intellectual property touches so many of the things that I'm interested in. The theater, there are various, various aspects of theater that can fall under intellectual property is certainly something that I was always interested in. But I also really have um, a love of the arts. And when it comes to the law, there's nothing that quite ties into it as much as intellectual property. However, I also do have a very big love of tech. Uh, I'm an internet baby. I love being able to, you know, build my own computers and playing with what I want, how I want my tech to work. And so that actually also influenced where I went. So my, my master's is in an intellectual property and information technology law. And then I continue to combine the two of them when I did my PhD. Wow, fascinating. So it's art, technology science and as well law. <laughs> so everything you need <laughs> to that. be a good IP lawyer. <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. There's a, there's a lot that I enjoy about it. <laughs> and what led you to write your book, uh, Disrupting Copyright, How Disrupted Innovation and Social Norms Are Challenging IP Law? So I was always fascinated by why the, uh, the tech world, the computer tech world, was always so anti-copyright. And I was like, you know, this is something that should be helping them. It should be protecting them. And I couldn't quite 
make the two sync up. And I really wanted to kind of explore how that came about. And when I was thinking about how this came about, what I ended up realizing is that computers and the computer world, the tech world, grew up with its own culture. And that culture very much influences how they view copyright. And so in my explorations of that, I realized that really what we were talking about was not just computers, but a branch of um, technologies that can be identified as disruptive innovations. And when you couple that with the social norms, you can end up with a very interesting tension and difficulties that are, are challenging in, in not just legal circumstances, but also business circumstances. And so um, that's kind of where the idea came from and just bloomed from there. What is disrupting innovation? Can you define for the non-technical audience? Of course, certainly. So disruptive innovation, despite the fact that it's a term that a lot of people use and they kind of throw it out there very easily, it's actually based on a business management theory by Clayton Christensen. So he wrote a book, The, um, the Innovator's Dilemma, uh, where he talks about disruptive innovations and he defined what they were. I took that and the legal literature out or the extra literature discussing it and defined it into a disruptive innovation is something where you're going to significantly see a change in the per performance parameters of, of a technology. So uh, a good example would be like a cell phone. When, when we started with cell phones, cell phones were, um, you know, they didn't have the range of a normal telephone. Sometimes they didn't have a great quality when you were calling on them, but they had this new performance parameter, which was that you could carry them everywhere you went. So this, this ability to move with your telephone line was a new performance parameter that the traditional telephone couldn't compete on. Now, obviously, that has since grown from the point where it was barely usable for some people and it was a brick or it might have been something that was <laughs> giant that you plugged into your car yeah. to what we now have in all of our pockets. But it is it started at a lower point on the progression scale and it and the, the type of things people who needed good quality phones would never have used cell phones. But because they started that, at that lower level and they had this new performance parameter, eventually they were able to grow to the point where they've now you know, kind of taken over the market for, for many people and, and in many, many circumstances. And that's kind of a good example of a disruptive innovation because they, they often start at a lower level in terms of what qualities that they have. They, they can't compete with the higher end versions of themselves, but they have something that's unique, this new unique property that allows them to just spread like wildfire because it's something that the market had not been served with before. It's something that the market needed and didn't know that it needed? Yes. Yes. I, I think that is, is something that you will often find with them. But it, it is about that new performance aspect to them. They're often cheaper. They're often, um, you know, they don't have the quality, but they're cheaper for people, which means that more people have access to them. It often means that they spread more. Um, but that ability to have an item about that that is new that people didn't realize or that the main market had not formerly catered to is what makes it disruptive as opposed to just a new new version of itself okay and how is related to ip 
there is nothing that says that a disruptive innovation has to be related to intellectual property. You know, you can get um, you can have a disruptive innovation that is like a threshing machine or the chip in in a new in a new computer. You can have disruptive innovations that have nothing to do with intellectual property. Uh, So but it is a type of innovation and those innovations that that are disruptive that do relate to intellectual property are from my from my research are going to pose a challenge a greater challenge to what we currently have in in ip because of the aspects and and um, properties that they have to them yeah because in your book you uh, walk us through um how this disruptive innovation have changed and shaped ip laws along the way well what i wanted to do with it is one of the things that you saw in the legal literature was that people would say oh this is a disruptive innovation but let's just talk about the let, let's not talk about the fact that it's disruptive let's just talk about any legal cases that might have been about it and so they never really looked at the fact that these were disruptive and what I did was I looked at as a class, I looked at a couple of different disruptive innovations and said, OK, well, these came in. What happened to the law when those came about? Did we have to change the law? And in a number of instances, yes, they had to actually react to these because they became very popular. And then they had to change the law because of these disruptive innovations that came about. So as I said, originally, my, hist- my, my background is in history as well. And I took this historical approach because if we could see what happened before, then we can learn what, what we're going to go into as, as we go along in the future. And so that I was trying to learn lessons from the disruptive innovations that had come along before and see how they were going to be, see what we might learn so that we can see into the future where we should go with them and, and, and work out a better plan. The best way to understand what's coming forward, because well, has as they say, there's nothing new. Yeah, um, we're, we're, there's always familiarities in the new experiences or the advances that we have as uh, as, as humanity. So uh, we can say from the moment that the printing was invented, every everything that came after, it's a, a, a new way to to mass produce or to provide uh, information or contact in different ways, but it's, it's, it serves the same purposes that now the range is higher and it's easier to attain this, this kind of content. I feel like it's particularly relevant nowadays with especially copyright, where, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we thought of with copyright, that, that idea of control, who can control it, more and more what you're seeing with a number of the disruptive innovations that are coming into, in, in, that we're using on a daily basis, like the internet, the internet as a global phenomenon, that is something that is challenging this idea of control. How we, how can you control something? So it is actively pushing against some of the the basic tenets of copyright, and we're we're finding our ability to enforce copyright problematic with this spread of a technology that now allows you to create copies very easily. And that's that is something that I found significantly happened with a number of different. Um, disruptive innovations was that they would be able to create cheap ways for new people to create copies, which is going to challenge any basis of copyright in terms of control that we have. But can you say that we are 
we are using analog methods to uh, to answer a digital question? I think that that is, I think that that's probably a correct statement. I don't know that that is exactly what is happening now, but certainly we are, I think we have to consider the fact that you now have devices in everybody's pocket that is capable of creating copies. How do you have control as an aspect of copyright that you're going to legally enforce when that is something that now everybody is capable of? You know, when we when we first thought about copyright, when certainly when when I was growing up, when we didn't have the Internet, it would have been very difficult for me to create copies of a book, a photo, an image. Uh, you know, th these are things that before this disruptive innovation came about, it was very difficult. The, the bar, the, the threshold of what you had to do to create a copy was very high, which meant that very few amount of people were going to create those copies. Now, every time I save an email, every time I, you know, flick through, flick through Instagram and you can take a screenshot, there are so many ways that have zero effort to create a copy If we are going to continue to have copyright based around this idea of controlling who makes copies, we're going to continue to have difficulties in, in enforcing those copyrights because we, we're, we're trying to enforce things that are happening in people's home that have absolutely that they don't have a they don't have an e there's no easy way for us to control the actions that are happening in private in someone's home. And that is what these disruptive innovations are starting to do more and more. I mean, if you don't want to think about it in terms of the Internet, you can just take a step back and think about photocopiers, which I used as an example in the book. Um, we had the, the photocopier, which originally were big, clunky things. They were only in businesses. So, again, it was quite difficult to get a copy of something. But now they are things that, you know, a lot of people have printer scanner copiers in their homes. At what point in time do we decide that control is something that we're not going to have? We're not going to be able to make a control something that we are going to enforce? Or are we going to actually try and reach into people's homes and prevent what they are, what they're doing, what, what technology has enabled to, to do? We, we, we have questions there, I think, that we need yeah. to, to look at. And, and going back to the example of the photocopies, the photocopy was, uh, when it came out, it could have been regarded as, as disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And did it, it, did it, it change IP as well after it was developed? Well, actually, you'll see, you know, the, a lot of the big laws, the 1976 Copyright Act and the 1988 CDPA in the UK, both of them at least were somewhat prompted by the, the photocopier as it came in. However, one of the things about photocopying itself was that it was kind of tapping into this idea of creating copies that had existed before in lesser able technologies. We don't really talk about mimeographs or, or ditto machines anymore, but there were other machines, technology, whatever you want to talk, call it that were capable of making copies but they weren't great and they weren't easily used and they weren't in everybody's home or business because they were too expensive they were expensive in both cost and in uh, teaching manpower teaching the the people who were going to use them and they often used like photographic 
technology. So you would have very expensive paper that were, that you were using it. What the photocopier came in and did was it allowed you to create a copy without actually having to have specialty paper, specialty staff, or anything like that. So it brought that cost down, which allowed the photocopying to happen in all of all of the businesses that we see today. So that would none of the the kind of business copying that we see in general would have happened without the photocopy machine. But you had a culture of copying that they were able to see and tap into when looking at how they were going to actually um, change copyright in the 70s and 80s when they were looking at updating the laws. So they did specifically add photocopying into what they were looking at when they were looking at updating the law at the time. Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. And what about radio? Let's go further back. Okay. Radio. <laughs> radio is a really interesting one because, uh, so I was primarily looking at the US and the UK. So radio had a whole new way of sharing copyright works. And that, what we saw with that was, it was less that they, that they changed copyright law, but they created the broadcast industry and the, the law surrounding the broadcast industry specifically because of radio. So what you ended up seeing in both the US and the UK was they actually were able to kind of put the fix the legalities of broadcast radio by uh, regulating the broadcast industry. So by regulating the broadcast industry, they were able to bring radio into the current copyright law that they had because the industry would actually follow the law. They shaped the sector according to their needs. Exactly. Exactly. And with radio, because broadcasters were different than users and treated differently than users and not everyone was able to broadcast, they were able to do that very effectively. Oh, that's that's fascinating. Finally, let's go now to the to the near present uh, when mm -hmm. at least uh, my my early days in the world, personal computers. I remember the first one in my home. I was about eight years old when it came to my home. Yeah, I think I was about that age, too, when when I got it. Um, they were personal computers are really interesting because, again, They brought the ability to do a variety of things with copyright works into the into people's homes. Uh, so this was a new way of 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 having copyright works, but it was also a new creation of a new type of copyright work because up until then you didn't really have significant home hobbyist um, creating programs or apps or anything like that. And when the personal computer came in, you saw a significant amount of programming start to happen outside of business and in this hobby space, which so not only did we have the new copyright work, the, the, the category of work of programs, but you also saw new usages of copyright works by computer users. So again, that is something that was that the law did actually look at. Um, it is is in both the 1976 and the, the 1988 CDPA um, updates in both the US and the, and the UK. So they did consider it. One thing though that happens and that is really fascinating is that especially in the US version, there wasn't a huge 
understanding. There wasn't a huge growth of understanding about personal computers at the time. And I think that some of the struggles that we see now is because they didn't understand the social norms that surrounded about the programming community. The programming community that not only fueled the hobbying community, but also the tech world that we currently have today and some of the opinions that the tech world holds. And so that lack of understanding by legislators who listened to the influences that they did when they were creating this, that the copyright that surrounds computers and computer programs has led to this divide that we see between the tech world and uh, the, the copyright world today. So the way they manage that disruption back then has impacted what the culture that we have today against uh, copyright and IP. I think it's, I, I think, yes. Um, but I think that they didn't realize that that culture was there. Um, you know, you, you see the, the sub submissions about it. All of the submissions that you see tend to be from people who are in industry are not necessarily the people who are doing the programming and who understand the and who understand what's happening with the, the programs, but you'll see these are the people who are going to be making money off of programs, selling programs as a service, who are looking for the copyright protections to prevent to protect their investments. Whereas the people on the ground who are using the code, who are creating new programs, who are sharing those programs, sharing programs was incredibly important in the early hobby space. And it is also partially what led to a lot of the different program um, languages that we have today. That, that side of it, that sharing community was not something that you see in any kind of submission to the legislators. And because they kind of ignored that that culture was there, they put in place laws that directly conflict with that culture. And so even though the laws are there, that culture was still there too. And those two have continued to butt heads since the early days of the personal computer. What about the future? Um, we have a lot of talk about AIs, artificial intelligence, and how they're going to completely change intellectual property, copyright, the way they are now. Um, we have AIs with the capabilities of creating either um, another AI or they can create um, copyrightable content like a painting or music. So what do you think the future holds on, on copyright law on that area? I actually talk about AI in my book, um, so I don't want to spoil the uh, <laughs> I don't want to spoil the punchline, but I do okay. think that artificial intelligence is something that we do need to look at. I do believe that it is a disruptive innovation, and I think that we are currently at the early life the early life cycle of AI. I think that we have not actually gotten to the to anywhere near market maturity or what the capabilities of, of artificial intelligence eventually will be. And I think that if we start making predictions now, we may find that we are once again butting up against cultures that we didn't know existed and problems that we didn't know might exist in the future by our lack of imagination on where artificial intelligence will take us. Well, if the super intelligence develops, develops soon, <laughs> we may be in danger or it may be the, the safe of humanity that we need. <laughs> uh, it's very true. 
if they can fix us a vaccine, that would be nice. <laughs> that would be great. And no more diseases at all. That would be also that would great. Be nice. that, would, that would be very nice indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Any final words about your book or about your research? I just think it's a fascinating area. And I think that I what I bring to it is a is a broader perspective than just law. It is something that we in the legal world often ignore. You know, we get very wrapped up in our judgments. And I feel like we have to make sure that we remember that the law has to be applicable in a world today. And the world comes with baggage. It comes with culture. It comes with people's opinions. It comes with technologies that do things that we don't want them to. And so we need to make sure that any law, any legal situation that we are going to create that we're going to actually create one that is appropriate for what we have today. And if that means that we need to consider our options in terms of where copyright should go, maybe now is the time to do that. Now that we have seen where technology can take us, maybe we need to start considering how much of what we have is old world thinking that needs to be updated for what we have today. I remember that one of my first lessons in law school, um, the professor explained, that the law is not to shape the society. Society shapes the law. I definitely think that it is a two-way street, but I definitely think that technology is at the point where it is forcing us in certain paths. We can't, we're not going to be able to put the lid back on the internet. It is here for the foreseeable <laughs> future, I think. So by pretending that its capabilities are not going to continue to be problematic for copyright holders, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. If, if that's going to be the case, if we're always going to have problems for that, perhaps we need to look at other solutions, whatever solutions those may be. Looking at the problem from a disruptive way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for your time. You can get Marjorie's book. Again, the title is Disrupting Copyright, How Disrupting Innovation and Social Norms Are Challenging IP Law. I highly recommend this book. Um, if you're a lawyer, and especially if you're not a lawyer and you want to discover the history of innovation uh, through copyright and Thank the future as well. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you for your time and thank you for your words. And, and also thank you for writing this book. And that's how I, I got to, to know who you are. And, no, thank you. And I hope you keep on, on sharing your knowledge uh, with the rest of us. I, I hope so too. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice or legal opinion.